Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. A favorite quote of our guest today comes from Maimonides. The physician does not cure a disease, he cures a diseased person. Is there a neurobiology of spiritual purpose? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ron Pies. Dr. Pies is Professor of Psychiatry and Lecturer on Bioethics and Humanities at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. He is also a Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Tufts School of Medicine in Boston and Editor-in-Chief of the Psychiatric Times. He is the author of several books, ranging from psychopharmacology to poetry to philosophy. Welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much, Dr. Long. Good to be here. Dr. Pice, tell us more about Maimonides. Maybe not everyone knows who that is. Well, Leslie, Maimonides was a physician and a philosopher who was working in the 12th century, so quite a while ago. He really had an astonishing range, wrote just about everything. I think that we could consider him in a lot of ways the father of psychosomatic medicine or the father of behavioral medicine. He was really centuries ahead of his time in advocating a holistic approach to the patient. Maimonides would look at everything from the patient's diet to the climate that the patient lived in. He used very comprehensive interventions, including music, really cognitive behavioral approaches uh, long before anybody used that term, and of course, medication as well. Medication? The medications back then were you know, primarily in the nature of uh, herbal and, and other kinds of natural remedies, not the kinds of things we would call medications today. Now, you even wrote a novella based on his life. <laughs> yes, it still hasn't been published, but I did write a novella dealing with the time in Maimonides' life when uh, he took in to his home a young physician named Joseph and really befriended this young novice physician. And what happened? Well, historically, we don't know exactly what happened. So I sort of spun off uh, my own ideas about that in the novella. I think it's fair to say that Maimonides, for all of his uh, medical wisdom and knowledge, tended to be a little rigid in his thinking. And this young man might have, uh, might have changed some of that in various ways. Speaking of your writing, you really have an incredible collection of writing from some of the classic textbooks of psychopharmacology to fiction and some in, even in between. Tell us about your writing and how you got started. The fiction and the poetry actually came a long time before psychopharmacology, uh, Leslie, for me. Uh, I started writing fiction and poetry when I was in my teens and 20s, mm. uh, well before I was even in medical school. So the psychopharmacology was a very late add-on. Uh, and how many books now? I guess somewhere around seven or eight, depending on oh. whether you want to consider first or second editions. <laughs> right. I always count those. Okay. <laughs> now, you've written that we are hardwired to have the essential building blocks of spiritual purpose. What are those building blocks? Well, of course, people will differ about what they mean by spiritual purpose, but my own view is that however you want to define spirituality, there have to be certain foundational elements in 
place. And I've broken those down, as others have, into uh, altruism, empathy, and what some people call self-transcendence, getting outside of yourself and being able to connect either with other people or in some sense of a higher power, if you will, some force out there that goes beyond uh, the self. And tell us more about spirituality in the brain. I know this is a great interest of yours. Well, I'm interested in the studies that have been done on faculties like empathy and the ability to relate to others, which I see as an essential component of spirituality. There have been some very interesting studies out from the University of Washington where researchers have looked at the neural correlates of feeling sympathy for someone. And uh, they did some very interesting studies using PET scans where they would have subjects uh, look at a series of video clips in which actors were telling either sad stories or neutral experiences. And essentially what they found was that watching sad stories evoked changes in blood flow in the brain in specific regions of the brain's right hemisphere and that facial expressions of emotion led to increased blood flow in a part of the left hemisphere of the brain. And my take on all of this is that we are evolved, in a sense, to react to other people's emotions or feelings in very specific ways from the neuroanatomical standpoint. And what would be the evolutionary advantage to behaving this way in our brain? I don't know for sure. You know, certainly sociobiologists and anthropologists would probably say that the survival of a small group of primitive humans in a tribe or in a clan would probably depend on their ability to accurately pick up and respond to the emotional signs and symptoms that others are are showing, feelings of distress, pain, fear, and so on. Now, is empathy a uniquely human trait? I don't think we know the answer to that. (laughs) I certainly don't. I think that the studies that I've seen on primates and perhaps even on dolphins and other animals might argue that empathy is not unique to human beings. I think where the unique aspect comes in for us is really involves this spiritual orientation that we have where we seem to go outside ourselves and connect with something larger even than each other. And that may be unique, but I suppose we can't rule out the possibility that dolphins and primates have some of that sense too. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is psychiatrist Dr. Ron Pies. We are discussing the neurobiology of spiritual purpose. Now, Ron, how does this new knowledge about spirituality in the brain, how does this affect our treatment, or or how could it affect our treatment of what Maimonides called the so-called diseased person? Well, one immediate consequence, Leslie, I think, is that when we know that a patient has had damage to these critical brain centers that I mentioned, we can expect that the patient will have difficulties in certain interpersonal areas, such as figuring out what another person's facial expression means. You know, when we see somebody fall on the sidewalk, our ability to empathize with and comfort 
that individual is really dependent on our brain's capacity for reading their emotion properly. If you can't understand that somebody grimacing indicates that they're upset or in pain, then you won't be able to make the right response. So, for example, patients who have had damage to their prefrontal cortex, there are reports that they actually lack empathy. Even when they were people who were very empathic prior to their brain injury, they start giving up things like social projects. They stop being able to relate well to their spouses. Psychopaths, people who we say uh, really lack a, a conscience, have a great deal of difficulty processing emotionally laden words or, or images. And their brains actually seem to show uh, different patterns of blood flow in response to those uh, stimuli. So we certainly need to be aware when people have this kind of uh, underlying brain dysfunction. If they do and they have these sort of spiritual or empathic uh, lacunae, how can we treat that? I mean, you, you can't have an empathy transplant, I don't think, yet. What can we do for these folks? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I do think that there are cognitive remediation techniques that can be helpful in helping folks with underlying brain damage learn new strategies for reading, writing, and, and the like. But whether we can actually teach them how to re-recognize facial expressions and the like in, a, in an empathic way, I think is really something that hasn't been well explored. One thing we do know is that the brain has a tremendous amount of plasticity. Uh, that is, it really is capable of healing itself over time. So I think we can certainly hang in there and help people over many years find sort of workarounds within their own brain to help them regain some of those faculties. Now, one of your many roles professionally is that your lecture on bioethics and humanities in Syracuse. Does this sort of material come to play in how you teach medical students? It does. Now, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is the role of poetry therapy in helping people reach down into those levels of emotion and perhaps a spirituality as well that straightforward psychotherapy may not reach. So I think poetry, both the reading of it and the writing of it, can be helpful in reaching those emotional levels. I also believe that uh, we don't attend enough in psychiatry to the person's spiritual orientation, what matters to them. You know, historically, and I think this is a sort of a side effect of the psychoanalytic influence, psychiatry has been a little hostile to some spiritual approaches to life, religious approaches to life, and um, I think that that's hampered us in our care of patients. What do we know about the research into patients with serious illnesses and their faith in terms of prognosis? We have to be careful. You know, I think that there was a mythology that said something like, you know, people who develop cancer or diseases like that, they sort of brought it on themselves by having the wrong attitude. And if we just change their attitude, we can improve their recovery rates. I think that's been pretty well shot down in terms of research on cancer. But we certainly know that when people are depressed, it alters their ability to recover, for example, from myocardial infarction or, or cardiac disease. And our presumption is that by treating their depression, ultimately we can improve their recovery and survival rates. 
That has not yet really been conclusively demonstrated in research studies, but it's certainly the assumption that, that I make. And I think that there are many ways of helping people out of their depression. Certainly medication, psychotherapy is one way. Connecting with their spiritual tradition and, and helping them receive some solace in, in that regard is, is, I think, another way. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise on our show today. You're very welcome. We've been discussing the neurobiology of spiritual purpose with the very humble psychiatrist, Dr. Ron Pies. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.